Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. You are now listening to the new podcast by Al Furqan Islamic Center. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe and share it with your friends and your family. Jazakallah khairan. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Ulaqibatu lil muttaqin. Ashadu la ilaha illallah. Wahdahu la sharika lah. Wa ashadu anna Muhammadan abduhu wa rasuluh. In the name of Allah, the most merciful, the one who bestows mercy. Indeed, all praise is due to Allah, the Lord of the worlds. And may peace and blessings be upon our beloved Prophet Muhammad وسلم, upon his family, companions, and all those who follow the guidance of the Prophet وسلم, until Yawm Al-Qiyamah. In this lesson, we come to the first hadith of Al-Arba'een Al-Nawawiyyah and it is An Amir Al-Mu'minin Abi Hafsin Umar Ibn Al-Khattab radiyallahu ta'ala anhu qal Sami'tu Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam yaqul Innama al-a'malu bin-niyyat wa innama likullimri'in ma nawa faman kanat hijratuhu ila Allahi wa rasulih فهجرته إلى الله ورسوله ومن كانت هجرته لدنيا يصيبها أو امرأة ينكحها فهجرته إلى ما هاجر إليه رواه إماما المحدثين أبو عبد الله محمد بن إسماعيل بن إبراهيم بن المغيرة بن برديز بالبخاري وأبو الحسين مسلم بن الحجاج بن مسلم القشيري النيسابوري في صحيحيهم الذين the first hadith has been narrated by Amir al-Mu'mineen Abu Hafs, Umar ibn al-Khattab. May Allah be pleased with him. He said, I heard the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam saying, Verily actions are by their intentions. And for every person is that which he intended. فَمَنْ كَانَتْ هِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ So whoever made hijrah, a migration, for Allah and His Messenger, for the sake of Allah and His Messenger, فَهِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ Then his hijrah is for Allah and His Messenger. وَمَنْ كَانَتْ هِجْرَتُهُ لِدُنْيَا يُصِيبُهَا And whoever made hijrah, for a worldly reason, in order to attain a worldly benefit, or for a woman to marry her, then his hijrah is according to that which he intended. And this hadith was collected by the two imams of the scholars of hadith, First of them, Abu Abdullah Muhammad ibn Ismail ibn Ibrahim ibn Mughira al-Bukhari. And the second of them, Abu al-Hussein Muslim ibn al-Hajjaj ibn Muslim al-Qushayri ibn Isaburi. In the Sahih, Ay Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim. He said both of these books are the most authentic books of hadith which have been compiled. So in explaining this hadith, we're going to explain it in four parts. The first part is, or the first section is regarding the narrator of the hadith. 
And then the second part, or the second section is the general meaning of the hadith. The third part will be detailed meanings from the hadith. And fourthly, a summary of the benefits from the hadith. So the person who narrated this hadith is Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu. And he's Amirul Mu'mineen because he was a second Khalifa of the Muslim Ummah after the death of the Prophet and Abu Bakr. And he was related to the Prophet at the seventh grandfather. So their lineage, it comes together at the seventh grandfather and he was Ka'ab ibn Lu'ay. And also, he's the brother-in-law of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Because the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was married to his daughter Hafsa. And his kunya is Abu Hafs. And Abu Hafs, this is a name which is given to a lion. In the Arabic language, a lion has many names and many descriptions. Some of the scholars of Al-Lugha, of Arabic language, they said that a lion in the Arabic language has over 300 different names or descriptions. And some of them said over 500 different names or descriptions are given to a lion. Like Asad and Fahad and I think Usama and Abu Hafs and Abu Abbas. All of these are names which refer to a lion. And the Prophet wasallam he gave him this nickname Abu Hafs due to the strength and authority which he was known for. And also with the Muslim Ummah, he's known as Al-Faruq. And the meaning of Al-Faruq is from Al-Furqan, i.e. the criterion, the decisive, barrier between truth and falsehood and the reason why he was given this nickname al-faruq because allah through the islam of umar he set aside the people of islam and the people of kufr meaning before umar radiallahu anhu became a muslim the Muslims would practice their Islamic lives and their Islamic obligations in secret. All of them afraid of the repercussions of the Quraysh. So if they prayed Salah, they would pray in secret. And if they met each other, then they would meet in secret. But when Umar anhu became a Muslim, because of the strength which he had, Allah aided Islam and the Muslims through Umar radiallahu anhu. So before his Islam, they used to practice in private and secrecy. After his Islam, then the Muslims had the strength and the courage to practice their Islam in front of the enemies. And that's why some of the Sahaba, they said, لم يزل الإسلام عزا منذ أسلم عمر That after the Islam of Umar radiallahu anhu, Islam has remained uh, honored, meaning openly. It is open and honored in front of the people. And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, before Umar became a Muslim, he'd make a dua, 
he would say, Allahumma a'izz al-Islam bi-ahabbi rajulayna ilayka. Oh Allah, give honor and strength to Islam by one of the two people, whoever is more beloved to you, the two Umars, either Umar ibn al-Khattab or Abu Jahl. Both of these people, Umar and Abu Jahl, in the days of Jahiliyyah, they were, they were known for their strength and courage and fearlessness and bravery and audacity. And so the Prophet used to make a dua to Umar, to Allah. The Prophet used to make a dua to Allah. That whoever of these two men is more beloved to you, O Allah, Abu Jahl, O Umar, then bring him to Islam. Because this will give strength and honor to the religion and to the Muslims. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he guided Umar radiallahu anhu. And Abu Jahl died upon Al-Kufr. And this dua of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa it shows that Umar radiallahu anhu was beloved to Allah jalla sha'nu. And there are various examples of how the Muslims, they found strength with the Islam of Umar radiallahu anhu. First of all, the majority of the Muslims before him, when they accepted Islam, they used to accept Islam in secrecy. And maybe their neighbors would not know, or they would hide it from their family members. However, when Umar anhu accepted Islam, he accepted it openly and publicly in front of everybody. And he's mentioned that he went to the house of Abu Jahl when he wanted to announce his Islam. And he knocked on his door, and then he said, Inni jituka li ukhbiraka anni qad amantu billahi wa rasulihi Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He proclaimed openly that I have come to inform you that I have believed in Allah and His Messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Also as an example of how Umar radiallahu anhu, how his, his Islam changed the way of uh, the religion was the statement of Ibn Mas'ud. He said, مَا كُنَّا نَقْدِرُ أَن نُصَلِّي عِنْدَ الْكَعْبَ حَتَّى أَسْلَمَ عُمَرُ he said, we the Muslims, we were never able to pray in front of the Kaaba. As I mentioned, all of them would pray in secrecy inside their homes. He said, Hatta Aslama Umar, until Umar became a Muslim. When Umar became a Muslim, then now they had the strength and the courage to go pray in front of the Kaaba, in front of everybody. In fact, Umar radiallahu anhu, he came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and he said, Alasna ala al-haq in mitna wa in huyina. He said, O Messenger of Allah, are we not upon the truth whether we die or we live? Meaning, if this religion, the religion of Islam, is the truth, regardless of whether the enemies allow us to live or they kill us, but the religion is the truth, then why are we hiding our salawat? Why are we not praying in front of them? He said, فَفِيمَ الْإِخْتِفَى Then why this hiding of the salawat? And then he said to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, وَالَّذِي بَعَثَكَ بِالْحَقِّ لَنَخْرُ He said, I swear by the one who has sent you, O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, with the truth that we will go out. Meaning from this day onwards, we will go out in front of the people and we will pray in front of the Kaaba. Because our religion, it is the truth. Also from the examples of how Islam or the Muslims found courage is 
that the rest of the Muslims, when it came to doing the Hijrah to Medina, then all of them would do it in secrecy at night or just before the break of dawn, except Umar anhu. He publicly and openly announced that he would be making Hijrah from Mecca to Medina with the Prophet And Umar ibn Khattab anhu, he was born 13 years after Amul Feed, after the year of the elephant. The Prophet وسلم, he was born in the year of the elephant, i.e. when the army from Habasha came with the great elephants to come and destroy the Kaaba. And Umar anhu was born 13 years after, meaning he is 13 years younger than the Prophet and he accepted Islam in the fifth year of prophethood. After five years had passed, that Muhammad was given revelation, he became a prophet now. Five years later, Umar ibn al-Khattab he accepted Al-Islam. And as I mentioned, he was the, he was the second Khalifa of the Muslims. So he is Khalifa to Khalifati Rasulillah. He is the Khalifa of the Khalifa of the Messenger of Allah. Abu Bakr anhu was the Khalifa of the Prophet وسلم, and then Umar was the Khalifa of the Khalifa of the Prophet and Abu Bakr anhu, he chose Umar to be the Khalifa on his deathbed. So it wasn't done by Ashura, rather Abu Bakr anhu, he chose Umar ibn Khattab to be the next Khalifa. However, there are certain texts, certain ayat and certain ahadith which allude to the fact that Umar anhu should be the second Khalifa. His virtues which are mentioned and the fact that he was always behind Abu Bakr anhu is always behind the Prophet Like the Prophet said, he said, he said to the people, after me follow two men. And then he mentioned Abu Bakr and Umar. So these types of evidences, they allude, meaning it is an ishara, that the one who will be most deserving of the Khilafah after the Prophet, he is Abu Bakr. And the one who is more deserving of the Khilafah after Abu Bakr will be Umar radiallahu anhu. And also, Umar radiallahu anhu, he is the best of the Ummah after the Prophet and after Abu Bakr. So after the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he is the second best of this Ummah. Rather we can say, Umar radiallahu anhu is the second best person from humanity. From Adam till Yawm al-Qiyamah, after the Prophets and the Messengers, then Umar radiallahu anhu is the second best person after Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. And this is according to the complete agreement of all of the Sahaba. All of the Sahaba, they agreed without any difference that the best of the Sahaba was Abu Bakr. And then after them was Umar. And then after them was Uthman. Or then they differed after that. So in Sahih Bukhari, Sahih Bukhari, Ibn Umar radiallahu anhuma, he said, Umar 
He said, Ibn Umar, that during the time of the Prophet ﷺ, nobody was equal to Abu Bakr. Nobody was as virtuous as Abu Bakr. And then after him, Umar. And then after him, Uthman. And then after him, we did not, we did not used to distinguish between the companions. Uh, and in some of the statements of the Sahaba, they say after Uthman Ali radiallahu anhu. This statement of Ibn Umar, it shows two things. First of all, that the complete agreement of the Sahaba is Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was the best of the Ummah. Then Umar radiallahu anhu was the second best of the Ummah, the second best of the Sahaba. After this, the Sahaba disagreed. So some of them said, Uthman radiallahu anhu is better than Ali. And others said that Ali radiallahu anhu is more virtuous than Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu anhu. So the point of agreement amongst the Sahaba is what? That Abu Bakr is first and Umar is second and there's no difference in this. The point of difference amongst them was after Umar, who is the next best? The majority of the Salaf, the majority of the Salaf and the majority of the Sahaba is that the third best is Uthman and then the fourth best is Ali. However, however there are some amongst the Salaf who held Ali anhu to be more virtuous than Uthman anhu, and they are the minority. And all of this was mentioned by Al-Hafidh Ibn Hajar in Fathul Bari in the explanation of the statement of Ibn Umar. And then he said, وَحَدِيثُ bab حُجَّةً lil And this statement of Ibn Umar, this is an evidence for the opinion of the majority of the Salaf. That first it is Abu Bakr, and then it is Umar, and then it is Uthman, and then after that they did not distinguish between the uh, Sahaba. And this narration it also shows that loving Umar radiallahu anhu this is from Iman so from your Iman in Allah is that you love Umar radiallahu anhu and you respect and you defend Umar radiallahu anhu also in the Khilafah of Umar many of the lands they were conquered and the Islamic Empire it was expanded so during his reign Iran was conquered and Iraq was conquered and Azerbaijan it was conquered Sham was conquered Philistine was conquered some of uh, southwest of Pakistan and India what was known as Sindh at that time that was also conquered and finally he died 23 years after the Hijrah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam uh, in al Madina, whilst he was leading the Fajr prayer by a Persian known as Abu Lu'lu al-Majusi radiallahu anhu arda. And he is the one who narrated this hadith an Umar taban, radiallahu anhu Umar ibn Khattab arda. Uh, so this hadith, what is the general meaning of this hadith? Gen the general meaning of this hadith is that every action 
is only judged by the intention which you have. So if you have a righteous intention and then the action which you do, then it will become righteous. But if you did a good action but you didn't have a correct intention, then the action is not considered to be righteous and good. This is the general meaning of the hadith. And what is the detailed meaning of the hadith? Firstly, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said, Innama, innama al-a'malu bin-niyyat. Innama, in the Arabic language, it is from adatul hasr, meaning it is restrictive. So this word innama, it restricts the meanings which are going to come afterwards. When the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, innama al-a'malu bin-niyyat, that actions are by the niyyah, by the intention. He's restricting the action according to the niyyah. This is what innama, it means al-hasr. That this action which you do, its reward and its validity is restricted by only one thing in this hadith. And that is the intention which you have. So if you have a good sincere intention, then Allah will accept this action. If you don't have a good sincere intention, then Allah will not accept this action. He said, al-a'mal, Actions. Islamically, actions, it covers a'mal al-qalb wa a'mal al-lisan wa a'mal al-jawarih. It covers the actions of the heart and it covers the actions of the tongue and it covers the actions of the limbs. In the language, when we say amal, actions, we're talking about the actions of the limbs, the physical actions. So we said that amal, actions, in the Arabic language, it covers just your physical actions of the limbs. Islamically, we say a'malul qalb, the actions of the heart, meaning the belief of the heart. It is called amal. And a'malul lisan, the actions of the tongue, meaning the statements. It is called amal. Wa amalul jawarih, and also the physical actions of the limbs. All of this is restricted to the niyyah. An-niyyat, niyyat is the plural of the word an-niyyah. What is an-niyyah? Linguistically, it is al-qasd. Al-qasd means an intention. Islamically, the meaning of an-niyyah is al-azm. Ala fi'l al-ibadah taqarruban ilallah. It is for a person to have a strong determination to do an act of ibadah in order to seek closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the meaning of al-niyyah. It is al-azm, that you make a strong determination. Ala fi'lil ibadah, that you're going to do an act of ibadah, taqarruban ilallah, as a means of closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the place in which the niyyah exists is in the heart. And as for announcing your intention, then this is an innovation. So the action that some of the people do, that before the salah, they verbally pronounce a niyyah. They say, whether it's in Urdu or Somali, in any other language or Arabic, they say, Oh Allah, I make an intention to pray this salah, this number of raka'at behind this imam 
facing the Qibla, this is an innovation. Why? Because the Prophet and the companions never did this. Also, you don't make a niyyah for anything else. You don't pronounce the niyyah for anything else. When you are about to fast, do you make a special niyyah? No, it is in your heart. And when you're going to make wudu, do you say, Oh Allah, I'm going to perform this wudu for this salah in this masjid? No, you don't. And so the niyyah, it is in the heart, like all of these other acts of worship. A person might say, in Hajj, in Hajj, a person says, Allahumma labbaik bil umrah, Allahumma labbaik bil Hajj, the talbiyah. This ikhwani is not the niyyah, this is a talbiyah. And the ulama they mention that the talbiyah, Allahumma labbaik bil Hajj, Allahumma labbaik bil umrah, which you say out aloud, it is like a takbira in the salah. You say Allahu Akbar out aloud to announce the fact that you have started your salah. The same when it comes to the talbiyah. You say Allahumma labbaik bil umrah, Allahumma labbaik bil hajj to announce that you have started the hajj. As for the niyyah, then it is in your heart. And so we said, innamal a'malu bin niyyad. That your a'mal, your actions, they are only according to the intentions. Meaning, al-a'mal as-saliha al-maqboolah bin niyyat as-saliha. That the righteous accepted actions with Allah are according to the righteous intention. So if you do a righteous action with a righteous intention, then it is accepted by Allah. But if you do a righteous action, but you don't have a righteous intention, then this is rejected by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَإِنَّمَا لِكُلِّ مْرِئِمْ مَا نَوَى And every person will be rewarded according to his intention. This second sentence, what is the difference between it and between the first sentence? The first sentence the Prophet said, إِنَّمَا الْأَعْمَالُ بِالنِّيَاتِ Every action is according to his intention. In the second sentence he said, And for every person is that which he intended. So are these two sentences the same? And the second sentence is only to emphasize the first sentence? Or is there a separate meaning in the first sentence and a separate meaning in the second sentence? The first sentence, it refers to the amal, the action. The Prophet said, Every action is according to their intention. The second sentence refers to the person. Because he said, For every person is that which he intended. And this is the difference. So the first statement is about the action itself. That the actions are according to their intentions. And the second sentence is regarding to the person who is doing the action. That each person will be rewarded according to his intention. Another difference is, that the first statement refers to whether the action is accepted by Allah or not. Every action, i.e. every action is accepted by Allah if you have a righteous intention. The second sentence, it refers to the reward which Allah rewards a person. That every person is rewarded by Allah according to his intention. And this hadith, that every action is according to his intention. It is general for every single type of action. 
However, there are certain actions which do not require an intention. Certain actions, even without an intention, Allah will reward a person for it. And from amongst these actions is Raddul Mazalim for the right of a person to be returned to him. So for example, a person stole from another person and then he made Tawbah. And now he wants to return this right which he stole from this person. Even if he didn't do it for the sake of Allah, he only did it because he's embarrassed for example. Or he doesn't want to be known as a thief. The ulama mentioned that the returning of the right, he's still rewarded for it even if it is not with the correct intention. And also, when it comes to the removal of najasa from your clothing. So let's say a person has some najasa upon his clothing, some impurity upon the clothing. And now you want to pray. So a person without a niyyah, he just washes this najasa away. Can he now pray or not? Because he didn't make the intention that he was removing this najasa for the sake of Allah. The ulama say that as long as he has removed the najasa from his clothing, regardless of what the intention was, then his action is accepted. And therefore now he is permitted to offer his salah. And the niyyah, we need to have the niyyah for various reasons. Firstly, the niyyah is important to differentiate between different types of ibadat. A niyyah to mayyiz bain al-ibadah wal-ibadah. A person's intention it differentiates between different types of ibadat. So for example, a person prays a salah. This salah, it can be fard or it can be nafal. The actions are exactly the same. You are facing the same qibla. You are praying to the same direction. You are reciting the same Surah Al-Fatiha, the same Ruku', the same Sujood, the same Taslim. Everything is the same. What differentiates between the Fard and the Nafal? Only the Niyyah. All unlike fasting. Nafal fasting and Wajib fasting, obligatory fasting. The fasting is the same. The action is the same. The same food you are staying away from, the same Fajr, the same Maghrib, everything is the same. What differentiates between the Fard fasting and the Nafal fasting, it is the Niyyah, your intention. And for this reason the ulama say that for the Fard fasting, you have to make a Niyyah before the Fajr. As for the fasting which is Nafal, then you do not, you do not need to make a Niyyah. So when it comes to the fard fasting, the Prophet ﷺ said in the hadith of Ummul Mu'minin Aisha anha, whoever does not make the intention before Al-Fajr, then there is no fasting for him. I fard fasting. As for the nafal fasting, then the Prophet ﷺ would sometimes wake up after Fajr, after uh, in the morning. And if there was nothing in the house, then he would fast. And he would not make a niyyah the night before. So this shows us the difference between the fard fasting and the nafal fasting. It is only the niyyah. Also the niyyah is required to distinguish between al-ibadat wal-adat. To distinguish between the acts of worship and your worldly actions. As an example, a person wakes up in the morning, he goes to have a shower. 
The shower is the same, the actions are the same, the hygiene and the cleanliness is exactly the same. For one person it is ibadah, for the other person it is ada. it is only a worldly action. What is the difference? Your intention. So if your intention in the morning for this shower was that this is ghusl, I am making it for the sake of Allah. I'm going to pray with this ghusl. I'm going to recite Quran with this ghusl. I'm going to go make tawaf with this ghusl. Then now it is ibadah. But if a person took the same shower because he just needs to get ready for work, because just for personal hygiene, or because he wants to look nice, then this is now from the adat. What was the difference between both of them? Only the niyyah. And even when it comes to dealing with the people. So one person, he is good towards the people because he wants the people to be good towards him. This person, he treats the people with respect because he wants to be treated with respect. Because he wants to be known as a nice person. This person, his akhlaq, his adab, his mu'amala, it is ada. It is only from the worldly actions. Another person, he deals with the people with good akhlaq. Why? Because the Prophet ﷺ ordered him to do so. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ordered him to do so. Because he is implementing the ahadith of the Prophet ﷺ. Now his actions and his interaction with the people, this is now ibadah. So this person will be rewarded for what he does and the other person will not be rewarded in the akhirah for the actions which he has done. And many other actions uh, like this. And for this reason, the ulama, they have a very beautiful statement. They say, عِبَادَاتُ أَهْلِ الْغَفْلَةِ عَادَاتُ وَعَادَاتُ أَهْلِ الْيَقَضَةِ عِبَادَاتُ Pay attention to this principle. Ibadatu ahlil ghafla adat. That those people who are negligent when it comes to their intention, even when they do actions of ibadah, then in reality it is only actions of the dunya. Meaning there is no reward for them. Wa'adatu ahlil yaqadha ibadat. And the worldly actions of those people who are alert and they pay attention to their intention and their heart, for them it is ibadah. How so? A person who is negligent, he gives in charity, for example, he gives money to the poor. But he isn't paying attention to his intention. So he is giving money to the poor because he wants to be known as a generous person. So this action of ibadah, of giving sadaqah, for him, is there any reward for him? No reward for him with Allah. And therefore it comes from it becomes an ada. It becomes just a worldly custom which he does without any intention. So therefore Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not reward him in the akhirah. As for Ahlu Yaqadah, the people who are alert and they tend to their heart and they tend to their intention, then everything which they do, even from the matters of the dunya, they do it for the sake of Allah. So the actions of the dunya, they become ibadah for them. So now when he gives the same money, he doesn't do it to be known to be generous, but he does it to seek the reward which is with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So now this is ibadah for him. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa he said, 
حتى ما تجعل في في مرأتك. Even the morsel of food which you place in the mouth of your wife. This is ibadah for some people and this is adah for other people. So now you have two people. One is negligent, ahlul ghafla, and the other one is ahlul yaqadah, the one who is alert and he tends to his heart. Ahlul ghafla, those people who are negligent, they provide for their family, but only for a worldly benefit. Why do you provide for your family? Because this is my responsibility. So that they don't go hungry. So that my wife treats me properly. So that I'm happy in my marital life. So that the people say good about me. This is, this is Ahlul Ghafla. Ahlul Yaqadha, the one who is alert and tends to his heart. Why do you feed your family? Because Allah obligated upon me to feed my family. Because this is my religious responsibility to feed my family. Because I seek the reward of Allah and the reward of the Akhirah in feeding my family and fulfilling my responsibility. His Aada, it becomes an Ibadah for him. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he rewards him for this action. So one of the greatest avenues of benefit and reward that people, they forget, and yet it is the easiest thing, is just the to change the intention. That is it. Give the same amount of money. Do the same action. But just the thought which is in your mind and your heart, this is different. Do it for the sake of Allah. This is the ibadah for you. Do it for the sake of the dunya. This is aada. This is only a worldly action. Maybe you will be rewarded in the dunya. Maybe you will not be rewarded in the dunya. As for ahlul yaqadha, those who are awake and aware and they have taqwa in their hearts, then Allah rewards them in the akhirah. So the principle is, Ibn Uthameen mentions it, he said, عِبَادَاتُ أَهْلِ الْغَفْلَ عَادَاتُ وَعَادَاتُ أَهْلِ الْيَقَضَ عِبَادَاتُ That the acts of worship which the negligent people do, they don't get reward for their worship because it becomes adat. It is only from the worldly affairs. However, the worldly affairs of the people, of those who are alert, the people of taqwa, this is ibadat for them. Allah rewards them even for their uh, adat. So when they go to work, this is ibadah for them. When they work, this is ibadah for them. When they return back from work, this is ibadah for them. When they speak with their parents in a nice manner, this is ibadah for them. When they help the neighbor, this is ibadah for them. Everything is ibadah for them, even their worldly actions. And then the Prophet wasallam, in order to emphasize this point, then he, he gave an example. He said, فَمَنْ كَانَتْ هِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ فَهِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ That the person who made hijrah for Allah and his messenger, meaning a person, he made hijrah, the meaning of hijrah is al-intiqal min balad shirk ila balad tawheed to migrate from the lands of kufr and shirk and disobedience to the lands of Islam and Iman and tawheed this is the meaning of al-hijrah so a person who makes hijrah for Allah and his messenger how does a person make hijrah for Allah and his messenger in the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam people made hijrah to Medina to be with the Prophet However, after the death of the Prophet they make hijrah 
for the sake of Allah and for the sake of the messenger meaning in order to protect the religion and convey the religion and give da'wah to the people to the sunnah of the Prophet so the one who does this with this intention then his hijrah is for Allah and his messenger meaning his reward is written for him the other person man kanat hijratuhu li dunya yusibuha whoever makes a hijrah with the intention of a worldly benefit meaning for business or for something else like this or for a woman to marry he said fahijratuhu ila mahajara ilay then his hijrah is for whatever he intended notice the difference in wording between both of these statements the one who made hijrah with the correct intention the Prophet said, فَهِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ Then his hijrah is for Allah and his messenger. Meaning, Allah will reward him for his intention. Allah will reward him for making the hijrah for Allah and his messenger. Even if he dies halfway. He dies halfway, he never ends up making the hijrah. Still, فَهِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ But his reward with Allah is that this person has made hijrah for Allah and his messenger. In the second statement, the Prophet ﷺ did not say فَهِجْرَتُهُ إِلَىٰ الدُّنْيَا Then hijrah is for his dunya. He only said his hijrah is for whatever he made hijrah for. Meaning that the reward of this person, firstly it is restricted to the dunya only. And then in the dunya, maybe he will attain the benefit and maybe he will not attain the benefit. But the person who made his intention correct, then 100% yaqeen he will attain his reward of the akhirah so how many people they make hijrah for a business and sometimes they are blessed in the business and they attain profit and sometimes they are bankrupt in their business even though they made this hijrah how many people they make hijrah for a woman in order to marry and so some of them end up marrying her and they have a good life and sometimes they don't end up marrying her or even marriage there is divorce. So whoever makes his intention for the dunya, then Allah restricts the reward to the dunya. And maybe, he's, maybe he attains the reward in the dunya, maybe he does not attain the reward in the dunya. But whoever makes his intention for the akhirah, even if he did not fulfill it in the dunya, but in the akhirah for sure he will be rewarded. And this is why the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, فَمَنْ كَانَتْ هِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ فَهِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ That whoever made hijrah for Allah and his messenger, then his hijrah is for Allah and his messenger. Meaning the reward is written for him. Even if he never ended up fulfilling it in the dunya. As for the one who made the hijrah for a worldly benefit, for business or for marriage, then whatever he intended. Maybe he will attain it, maybe he will not attain it. Maybe he will be successful in the dunya, maybe he will not be successful in the dunya. And this hadith, from the importance of this hadith is that some of the ulama, they mentioned that this hadith is nisful ilm. This hadith, it is a half of all knowledge. A half of all knowledge goes back to this hadith. How? Because your actions, they are either the intention which you do or the action which you do. 
So if you rectify your intention, then this is now half of the knowledge. And then you have to also rectify your action. Your action has to also be according to the sunnah of the Prophet So then if you rectify your action, then this is the second half of knowledge. Some of them they would say, Al-ilmu nisfan, that knowledge is two halves. The, half, the first half is innam al-a'malu bin niyat, actions are according to their intentions. The second half is the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha, man ahdatha fi amrina hadha ma laysa minhu fahuwa rad. That whoever does an action which is not according to our affair, according to the sunnah, it will be rejected. So any action which a person does has to fulfill two, two conditions. The first condition is your intention has to be correct. This is this hadith. The second condition is the action in in of itself has to be according to the sunnah of the Prophet And this is the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha. So if a person, for example, he stood up to perform salah, his intention was corrupt, he did it to show off, but the way he did it was completely perfect following the way of the Prophet is his salah accepted by Allah? It is not accepted by Allah. Why? Because although he followed the sunnah exactly, but his intention was corrupt, and therefore it is not accepted. Another person, his intention is sincere, but his, the way he offers his salah, it is not correct. It isn't according to the sunnah of the Prophet Is his salah accepted from him? Even if he did not have, even if he had the sincere intention, it is not accepted from him. Why? Because he didn't fulfill the second condition of following the way of the Prophet Some of the Salaf, they said, Al-ilm thalath. That knowledge, all of knowledge, it goes back to three hadith. Hadithu Umar, wa hadithu Aisha, wa hadithu An-Nu'man. The hadith of Umar, meaning this hadith, and the second hadith is the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha, which we mentioned. Uh, and the third hadith is, Halal is clear, and haram is clear, and we will come to it later, later on. Uh, also, from the benefits uh, of this hadith uh, and then of course there are many benefits of this hadith the first benefit of this hadith is the importance of the intention that the prophet sallallahu he mentioned a hadith and narrations regarding the importance of a niyyah and the niyyah is important why because it distinguishes between ibadah and ibadah between a fard Ibadah and Nafal Ibadah. And because it distinguishes between Ibadah and Aadah, between Ibadat and between Al Aadat. Also, from the benefits of the hadith is that it encourages us upon sincerity. That every action we do, even the actions of the dunya, if you do it for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you seek the reward which is with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then it becomes an action of the Akhirah. And, and this is how the Muslims should be. قُلْ إِنَّ صَلَاتِي وَنُسُكِي وَمَّحْيَايَ وَمَمَاتِي لِلَّهِ رَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ Say, my salah and my 
slaughtering. This is for Allah. We understand this. And my living and my dying. So not only your ibadat, but even the matters of the dunya, do it for the sake of Allah. And then Allah will reward you even for the matters of the dunya. From the benefits of this hadith is how the Prophet wasallam used to educate the people. The different methods he used in educating the people. So first he gave a general principle All of the actions are according to their intention. Then he gave a similar meaning in a different way. Then he said And for every person will be the reward of that which he intended. So we see that the Prophet ﷺ in his education, he wouldn't only explain something in one way. He would explain something in one way to one person, and then he would use a different method of explanation to a different person. Why? Because people have different intellects, and different types of understanding, and different types of learning. Also from the ways that the Prophet used to educate the people, is giving examples. And for this reason, in this hadith, he didn't suffice with just the first two sentences. Then he gave examples to the people. He said, Whoever makes hijrah for Allah and His Messenger, or whoever makes hijrah for the dunya, whoever makes hijrah for marriage, he gave these examples. So one of the methods of educating is giving examples for the people to understand. And this is a good way of education. That first a person gives a general principle, then he tries to give this principle in a different way. Maybe this person understood this principle the first way, the second person might not have understood completely. So then you, you give the same principle in a different way with a different wording, from a different angle. And then the third step is you give examples. And you give examples which apply and are relevant to the people. So for example, when it comes to, let's say, issues of zakah. When you're explaining the issues of zakah in Britain, in the people who live in the cities, don't use cows and cattle and dinar and dirham, which was there many years ago. People don't understand dinar and dirham anymore. But if you give the example of pounds and dollars and stocks and shares, and bitcoins and things like this which are relevant to the people then people will understand also in the Quran Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala how many times does he mention a camel do the people not look at the camel and how the camel was created why did he give the example of the camels because this is what the people knew and this was relevant to the people people appreciated the camel and how the camel was created and the benefits of the camel so Allah gives this example which is relevant to the people today for example you're trying to explain the blessings of Allah to the people you give examples which are relevant to them which people understand also in this very hadith why did the Prophet mention making hijrah for business and making hijrah for a woman because in those days this is why people used to move from one place to another the traders in those times they would go on journeys for business and some of them they would move from one land to another land for marriage and so the Prophet gave examples which were relevant to the people and all of this is from the excellent way in which the Prophet used to educate the people
also from the benefits of this hadith is regarding al-hijrah that al-hijrah is from the great acts of ibadah a question is often asked what is the ruling of hijrah for those people who are living in the non-muslim countries the countries in which there is kufr and it isn't ruled by the muslims and it isn't a muslim country what is the ruling of the Muslims living and abiding in those lands? As Shaykh ibn Uthameen rahimullah, he mentions that the ruling is one of two. Either it is mustahab, it is recommended, meaning it isn't a wajib, but it is recommended, or it is wajib. When is it wajib and when, it is, when is it recommended? If a person is living, if a Muslim is living in the lands of the non-Muslims, and he isn't able to openly practice his religion, then now it becomes wajib upon him to leave this land and go live in the Muslim countries in which he is able to openly practice his religion. Here it becomes wajib for him. So for example, in our societies, if a woman is not able to, for example, wear the hijab in the streets, it isn't allowed for her to live in that country in which the hijab is now banned. She has to go make hijab to a country in which she is able to wear her hijab and her jilbab. If we as Muslims, let's say in a particular non-Muslim country, we aren't allowed to build masajid. We aren't allowed to attend Salatul Jama'ah. Then we have to leave that country and go to a country in which we are able to build the masajid. The second ruling is when it is only recommended and not wajib. And this is when you are living in a non-Muslim country, but you are able to openly practice your religion. Even in that country, it's not wajib, but it still remains mustahab, recommended. Why is it recommended? Because it is ibadah. And the asl of the ibadah, it is that it is recommended. And there is an important point here is, that us Muslims living in this country in Britain, we have to justify our existence in this country. As Muslims, our existence in this country can't be only for dunya, only for the benefits, only for health. Rather, your existence in this country has to also be for the sake of Islam. Tomorrow, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asks you, why did you remain in this country? It was either wajib for you to make hijrah or at the least it was mustahab for you to make hijrah. So why did you remain in this country? How are we going to justify our answer in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? If you mention only dunya, then this isn't good enough. But along with the dunya, live in this country to spread Islam. Make it your mission to give da'wah to the people. Call the non-Muslims to al-Islam. So at the least, if you are questioned by Allah on Yawm Al-Qiyamah, justify your existence in these non-Muslims and you can say, Oh Allah, yes, I moved for the dunya, but also I remained here because of your religion. And I tried my best to give da'wah to the people. And every, and repeat this all the time, every single Muslim is da'i ilallah. Every single Muslim is a caller to Allah. Not only the Imam, not only the Khatib, Every single Muslim is a caller to Allah, but according to your responsibility. So some people, they are able to give lectures and they are able to stand on the mimbar. 
some people they are working with the non-muslims they have colleagues in school in education they have neighbors who are non-muslims you are da'i your actions is da'wah your actions are da'wah to allah your statements are da'wah to allah so make your existence up in these lands justify it with i remain in this land to give da'wah to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also uh, from the benefits of this hadith is that this hadith is what the ulama call al-gharib a hadith of the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa there are many types they are either ahad and mutawatir the ahadith hadith are either gharib or aziz or mashhur the gharib hadith is the hadith which has been narrated by only one narrator in one of the levels of the chain of narration it is called al-gharib so this hadith even though it is one of the most famous hadith in sahih bukhari and muslim however there's only one companion who narrated this hadith it is only umar anhu. no other companion has narrated this hadith the majority of the other hadith are usually narrated by two or three or five or seven or more companions. This hadith is from one of the few hadith which only one companion, Ayu Umar radiallahu anhu, he narrated. And this type of hadith in which there is only one narrating one of the levels of the isnad, this is called gharib. And the hadith which is gharib can be authentic or it can be zaif according to whether the chain numeration is authentic or not. This hadith, Imam al-Bukhari, he began his sahih with this hadith. And Imam al-Nawawi, he began his 40 hadith with this hadith. And also his book, Riyadh al-Salihin, he began with this hadith. In fact, some of the tabi'een, I think it was Qitada, he said, Man arada an yu'allif kitaban, that whoever wants to begin writing a book, they let him begin with to remind him of the importance of the correct intention behind that which he is uh, writing. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to rectify our intentions. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for al-ikhlas. Wallahu a'lam wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina wa sallam.